it's a kind of ugly metaphor that I don't think someone sticks in unless it has a kind of reality attached to it. This is Chapter, Verse, and Season, a lectionary podcast from Yale Bible Study. Join us each week as two Yale Divinity School professors look at an upcoming text from the Revised Common Lectionary. Merry Christmas, almost. Yesterday's episode was for the fourth Sunday of Advent, and today is for Christmas. I hope you're taking good care of yourself during this busy season. I know we're all pulled in a lot of different directions this time of year. Make sure to take some time to center yourself in the meaning of these church seasons of Advent and Christmas. This episode, we have Joel Baden, professor of Hebrew Bible and director of the Center for Continuing Education, and Andrew McGowan, dean of Berkeley Divinity School at Yale and McFadden professor of Anglican Studies and Pastoral Theology. They're discussing Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7, which is appointed for Christmas, the feast of the Nativity of the Lord, in year B. The text is read for you by student Antonio Vargas, Jr., Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied exultation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Great will be his authority, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, Joel, this Isaiah 9 text is so familiar, but it's not just familiar, perhaps not even so much familiar because... Christians have read it in churches is because they've heard it sung or sung it themselves. All this material that's used in Handel's Messiah. This almost strikes me as both, of course, a wonderful instance of the reception of texts and their reinterpretation, but it may also be a bit of a barrier to coming back to think, well, what does it actually mean in its original setting? So what what did it mean when Isaiah, or sorry, Isaiah, you Americans, (laughs) what what did it actually mean when it was written? First of all, I would say you're, you're very right. I'm not Christian, and I still, I've sung this many, many times, and I still, like, that's the first thing that I think and hear when I pull this passage up. So it's, I mean, it is absolutely cross-cultural 
you know, or at least across Western cultural to, to hear that here. So, I mean, when we think about what it was once, again, there's so many, there are so many texts that we have essentially excerpted from their both historical and literary contexts because they now do something else for us, whether liturgically or musically or whatever. This is obviously one of them, but, you know, so it's actually somewhat harder than even to re- to to call back to what it what it may have once meant. I mean, this is an enunciation scene, uh, one way or the other, right? A child has been born, a son has been given to us. It is it is in, it is talking about the birth of a child, uh, but it is talking about I think historically in its original context, it is talking about you know the birth of a child when it was in the eighth century. Most people in the scholarly community, I think, uh, follow what is actually the traditional Jewish uh, reading, which is that this is a prophecy about the birth of Hezekiah, right. who was, you know, for whatever reasons, was seen as, as I think probably most, I think this could have been about almost anybody, right? I think most royal births would have been enunciated. Right. But um, Hezekiah's would have been one that people would have been happy to keep on remembering as a positive enunciation because he has such a positive press yeah, relative yeah, he to most other has, kings of Judah. Yeah, he's 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 one of the one of the favorites, to be sure. I mean whether, you know, wonderful counselor and everlasting father and prince of peace are necessarily attributes that we would in the like retrospectively apply to him, I'm not sure. But in a time of you know, we have to remember the eighth century, like the vast majority of Israeli history, it was a time of international pressure and near crisis, and every, every new new beginning was a, a new hope for for something something great. And maybe maybe this is the time. Maybe this is the moment when we actually turn things around and, right. and, and we reclaim some of the independence that. I don't know that they ever really had, but that they've always imagined, you know, looking back to David. And without being, you know, necessarily having to say that it's definitely Hezekiah, we're probably talking about people who are thinking about the encroachment of the Assyrian Empire. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which they they must be familiar either with the threat or with the reality of war, or the, the reference to the, the boots of the tramping warriors and the garments rolled in blood and so forth. I mean, these that that's... It's a kind of ugly metaphor that I don't think someone sticks in unless it has a kind of reality attached to it. Right. Again, this is you know this is what happens with so many texts that we have that we have taken out of context. We all sing, you know, a child has been born for us, and we all, all of the names. We're not often singing, or at least consciously, about the the boots of the tramping warriors and the, and the garments rolled in blood. Uh, nor do nor does anybody understand the rod of the oppressor that has been broken as on the day of Midian. Right. What, what, what's I going, don't know. That, that, uh, is that a sort of uh, <laughs> looking back to? Earlier Israelite history as a, as a sort of well, it's not quite a metaphor, but as as an echo. This is like what happened with Midian, or is Midian yeah. really a player in this? I don't know. I think this. I think this is a sort of a, a traditional. I don't have. A, I was. I was trying to think of a good contemporary example. I don't have one for this, but you know the the like like at Appomattox yeah, or the redcoats are coming, you right? Or you know like this is this is your it, it's uh, like Waterloo. That's actually a pretty oh, yeah, good one. That's right, right because that does um, stick. Yeah, yeah, right. This the, you know the day of Midian was like the Waterloo for the Midianites. Yeah. It's I, I don't know exactly what the reference is. Some sort of day of triumph of the Israelites, et cetera, et cetera. The point is that kind of a reference, like day of the day of Midian should jolt us back into like the historical context of this. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, this this the day of Midian, that's not that's not about us or now or even about the turn of the common era. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It's it's uh this is a text that is rooted in a history. Right. That said, you know, 
it sure has been lifted out of it. Sure, but it also jolts us back into the fact that even in this text, there's a measure of that rereading and reappropriating going on about earlier stories. Oh, always. So, so it also reminds us that there's no sort of immaculate escape from from the perils of reinterpretation by finding that original level. I mean, I I find it enormously useful and interesting, even when I'm trying to read texts as a preacher or some otherwise as a Christian theologian, to understand as best I can on the basis of work that folk like you do, what the original context really does, because it always brings a certain, you know, razor's edge to extraneous, you know, accruals upon the text. But but we also can't avoid that possibility, can we? That is to say, the possibility that, that meaning gets constructed not only by our encounter in the 21st century with this 8th century text, but by the things that have occurred in between. What do you think more generally about that? Do we have some sort of criteria for working out what's a, a valid or an interesting or a useful rereading and what is not? How do we determine that? I've always sort of come to this with the notion that, you know, we sometimes we make the distinction between like, well, what is, what is the original context? What did it really mean? Uh, what is this historical background? And then, you know, what is the, then the, then the reception history, right? Well, then what did people do with it that's like contingent on their, you know, various contexts of and communities of reading? I find that dichotomy to be essentially false because the original context is still just a community of reading. Right. And I mean, I don't know what whether everybody back then when it was first written would have known what the day of Midian was either. And certainly Isaiah is like, God, there's a little eschatological gesture here, mm-hmm. uh, if not, you know, in the full-blown later sense. So, you know, what what validates a reading? It's not, I'm not, there's no sense in which everybody should now say, look at this and say, this is Hezekiah. Right. And we should stop t- making this about anybody else, you know. Right. Because we don't even know that apart from anything else. But, right. but yeah. Sure. So I mean, the question is, what is the value of getting the historical context in. It's not to reveal, you know, what the true meaning of the text is. No. The one thing that came up in this exchange for me is the, um, you know, thinking about the, the the really sort of gruesome and difficult context of, of a war situation. I mean, in other words, if I try and transfer that into 21st century terms, this makes more sense to me thinking about the way people in Ukraine look for hope than it does to think about how, you know, m- middle class people in North America will think that Christmas will give them warm feelings inside. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, as you said, the context of this, we can, there are plenty of modern equivalents. I'm not sure that most of us, as you say, like living in you know, relatively well-off, you know, 21st century America are living in those in those times. But it, I, I think that does make it useful to think about what this text is doing for people who who are for the people who were in that context then and who are in that context now. This is this is people living under you know really deep imperial threat, existential threat, and you know the lifeline they have isn't what's happening now. It's this hope for maybe the next generation of our leadership is going to be the one that that brings us out of this thing. And who perceive in something like the birth of a child, not simply the sort of natural symbol of cycles of renewal and so forth, but the possibility that the God in whom they place their hope is capable of providing them with hope and transformation. And there's no question then that the, you know, the traditional Christian read of this picks up on that pretty, pretty well. It's, It's really, you know, sometimes it's easy to be like, oh, you know, this is from my my particular perspective. It's very sometimes it's easy to be like, oh, y'all just took a y'all just took a, a Jewish text and made it about you. Mm. But actually, I mean, Jewish readers were reading this text messianically. Also, right, it wasn't about Jesus, but I mean, 
the, the text speaks to uh, contexts in which messianic hopes arise. Right. And so I think that whether that's, you know, in the 8th century BC or in the 1st century CE or in the 21st century, the text works. It, it works across the board, I think. Thanks for listening. The transcript of this episode and lots more Bible study resources are at galebiblestudy.org. Chapter, Verse, and Season is a production of the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School. It's produced by creator and managing editor Joel Baden, production manager Kelly Morrissey, associate producer Aidan Stoddart, and I'm your host and executive producer Helena Martin. And our theme music is by Calvin Linderman. We'll be back with another conversation from Chapter, Verse, and Season. Season.